You guys good to go? Thank you for this extraordinary honour. The Australian people have voted for change. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. And welcome to our final, final episode of Below the Line, a 2022 federal election podcast special. We've been covering the election campaign and there was so much to talk about after the extraordinary result on last Saturday night. We thought we needed two episodes as our final episode. So apologies if this is dragging things out. But last episode, which we thought would be our final, turns out it wasn't, was looking at the campaign. But now... In our final, final episode, we're going to look at what the future holds for everybody, from the Uluru Statement of the Heart through to the transition to government, the future of conservative politics in Australia, the future for the Greens, and on and on from there. I'm John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne after many years at the ABC, and I'm joined by Professors Annika Gaya and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney and Associate Professor Andrea Carson from La Trobe University, and we've been having fun with this election podcast special. We're going to hear from some of La Trobe students in a moment and also from some of the academics who have been doing particular research on specific items of interest, in particular the Teal independence. That's coming up for you shortly too. But very quickly, let's whip around the panel. Annika, what do you think the future holds, transition to power for the government, and a quick comment about the future for conservative politicians? Well, I think there's two aspects to what's happened. The first is we've got a change in the composition of the parliament in terms of the people, representation, women, people of ethnic minorities, and also First Nations people. The second is obviously the party composition, which is going to have huge implications for policy and also for the way in which we do politics in the chamber too. So in terms of what this means for conservative politics is I think it's going to be a policy vacuum for them for the next couple of years because we've got a very progressive parliament and we have a clear window of opportunity for some major shifts on, on climate change um, policy. So the first thing they do is they choose a leadership team. This is the new opposition. The next thing, and salvaging something from the wreckage, but then do they not, surely, apart from doing a review of the campaign, which the party administration will do, but they also have to do a complete review of their policies. Do they have to go right back and start from scratch or do they just do a Band-Aid patch-up? Oh, their policies and their way of working as a political party as well. They have to really revisit how they pre-select their candidates and what role their, their members have in the process. But in terms of the policy introspection... Yes, I think it is time for them to, to do a, a wholesale shift because if they just do band-aid, uh, a Band-Aid sort of fix and a, don't look really hard into the core of what it means to be a Liberal in terms of getting that balance right between the economic side of things and also the social side of things. So these tectonic plates that they've been juggling for a while, they've papered over the cracks they've, by winning the miracle they, election they, You're ago, dead right. They? They're tectonic plates and they've been tectonic plates for their entire party's existence. Simon, just still looking at the former government, now opposition, we'll come to the transition to power for the Labor Party in a second, but what do you make of it? We should not underestimate Dutton's, his pragmatism, that he will seize this moment to try and solve these structural issues. Now, that seems so incongruous from the, the public image of Peter Dutton. But as you know, John, from your contacts throughout Australian politics, as I know from having dealt 
personally with when he was Minister for Defence and Minister for Home Affairs and uh, fellow Queenslander. Up close and personal, Peter Dutton is a different operator and a, and a personality to what you see through the TV screen. And I actually think he will take on that challenge of trying to change the party. He is going to be hamstrung by, A, his reputation in the public media. It's going to be a real challenge for him, staying across the dispatch box. Yeah, yeah, look forward to, you know, features in but the weekend the newspapers. as well, and, and this is the other structural but, issue, that an emboldened national party, both numerically in the joint party room, and Joyce pointing to how and, and they, haven't, they haven't gone backwards at all, yep. and da-da-da-da, that's going to be a continue as it was for Morrison, continued to be a real break on their ability to, to deal with the fact that the, the, the national electorate is, is just moving on. We want to go ahead on climate. But There's all it, these issues we want to make progress on, and, and coalition, as it's currently configured, is just structurally poorly set up for that. But aren't they hampered in making a big shift by the fact that the moderates who would have directed that shift are the ones who lost their seats, There's and nothing, the ones who were left behind are a conservative and, and anti-climate change rump? There's losing sucks. I remember I spoke to Gough Whitlam once. Um, we were comparing Gough Whitlam stories uh, once, and... Um, Whitlam under what most goes of his on tour stays on tour, Simon. That was at dinner. It's not for including in the podcast. No, but 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 Whitlam, you get tired of losing, right? Would you rather have the ministerial leather or not? Yep. And I think that you know, look at John Howard. Do we want to win or not? We've got to stop being opposed to Medicare. Yep. Right. And and they they gave up on that. We'll see whether um, they can. And Gough Whitlam, um, we're gonna we're gonna stop our opposition to state aid to to, to to schools. And Whitlam got that through the party conference in '69. They came to office in '72. Don't underestimate the capacity for losing and the discipline it imposes on political parties to change the way they go. We'll come and look at transition to government in a second. But Casso, we'll hear from some of your students in a moment. But what do you make of the the wreckage and putting back the pieces for a conservative side of politics? Well, it's not looking good, is it? It could be a real lurch to the right for the coalition because of the people that are left standing. This has been an ongoing trend over time. Uh, just think of names like Scott Ryan, Greg Hunt, Julie Bishop, Kelly O'Dwyer, uh, Josh Frohadenberg, Katie Allen. They've all occupied... Falinski, Zimmerman, yep. yeah, Keep adding to the list. So who's left? These are the neoconservatives, the diehards of the party, and if Dutton ends up being leader, and there's every indication he will, what sort of party is left uh, out of the coalition? It could be quite a conservative, almost niche party. You will learn a lot when Scott Morrison announces he's leaving and there's a by-election and we'll see who is pre-selected in his place. Because their pre-selections in the fight, the Supreme Court and the internal battles in the New South Wales Liberal Party were disastrous. And if the messages got through, you'll see it when Scott Morrison resigns to leave the parliament and there's a pre-selection battle there. Fascinating. Let's look at transition in a moment. But first, we have some students who are going to tell us what they make of this election. Okay, guys. So, who have we got here? Piper. Piper, how did it feel to vote for the first time? It was really cool, like being able to like know that my vote had like a, like I, oh my God. <laughs> I was able to make a change and like the things that I care about got a say. So it was really exciting to vote for the first time. And Nadine, how about you? 
Yeah, well, I was super excited as well, considering it's been something that I've like looked forward to for so long, really getting to exercise my right to vote and, and get involved as well with the election campaign was really exciting. What were the main issues that decided your vote going into the election? Definitely climate change. I wanted like them to take a bigger stance on that. And women's safety and respect in the workplace, especially after like all the stuff that happened in the Liberals in Parliament last year, I wanted to feel safe. And like Labor had some really good policies on that. Yeah, I think for me the main issue that concerned me was Medicare and how much it was cut under the LNP. So I really appreciated the election um, and like the policies that were um, proposed for like um, age care ratios, um, increased GPs, like late late um, hour GPs, like 50 of them that they promised to open and things like that. I think um, that was like the biggest issue for me. So, yeah. And what are your thoughts on the result of the election? so exciting i think it's a really exciting time to be a young person especially with like climate change now being able to push further ahead in policy women's safety i think it's really cool to see being be a part of as well um i was genuinely surprised by the election result um especially by the wave of teal independence um across Australia I think nobody really saw that coming to the extent that they've launched um, and I think yeah a lot of voters have expressed their um, like how they feel about climate change and a lot of issues that the LNP have, have ignored over the past nine years um, so yeah I think it was a surprising but successful result for a lot of people. Awesome thanks guys. Fabulous thank and thank you both very very much for giving us just a taste of what the students here at La Trobe University where we are recording our final, final session and uh, it's been wonderful to be able to get those voices from out in the Agora. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. Our election podcast Below the Line is wrapping up soon, but The Conversation's evidence-based journalism never stops. Every day we publish high-quality news and analysis written by academic experts and edited by journalists. To become a subscriber, Click the Get Newsletter button on our website or follow the link in the show notes. Many thanks for your support. Now, back to the podcast. Now, let's talk about transition to government. We also have two guests joining us in a moment. One of them, Phoebe Heyman, is doing a PhD on the Teal Independence. We'll hear from her in a moment too. And then we'll hear from the Trobe Asia Director, Associate Professor Beck Strating. That's coming up in just a moment. But let's quickly look at transition to government. Simon, there's so much that needs to be done. The first thing Anthony Albanese said when Penny Wong introduced him on Saturday night... Uluru statement from the yeah, heart. Yeah, 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 incredible. I admit I shed a tear. I didn't shed a tear, I was, but I was surprised. And, and um, the room I was in, don't think they were surprised, but there was this sort of cheer, put it that way. Um, a penny also opened up with that. Yep. Uh, they've, put, they've brought the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags onto stage in Parliament House. Um, Which so, all the state governments, I think, have already done. It was glaring. I mean, we have to remember, if Peter Dutton's going to be the leader... Peter Dutton walked out on the apology to the stolen generation, theatrically. I mean, you know, they've got a long way to go, but let, let's not it, concentrate gonna... on that. Let's look at what the government's going right. to do. The new government. I mean, I just very quickly thought up a whole bunch of things. They're going to have to find a governor general. London to a brick, it's going to be a woman. Yeah. Might even be an Indigenous woman. Agreed. Extraordinary stuff. A new Chief Justice of the High Court and another Judge of the High Court, a President of Fair Work, uh, Mitch Firefield, Ambassador to the United Nations. 
probably should be, you know, packing his bags and wondering exactly how oh, much no, longer all, he's going to be there. All the depot appointments. Um, George Brandis left London, hasn't been replaced, so there's the most important position of all in London, and now with, you know, Brexit and then... No, I'd suggest to you there's another uh, diplomatic appointment Washington. more important than Washington. Yeah. Uh, did anyone replace Joe Hockey? Was it a Yeah, Arthur diplomat? Sinodinus. Oh, Arthur Sinodinus, of course. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, he also might be just checking um, the schedule to see all what the All the CG appointments, in, not all of them, but almost all of them, have become political appointments in the US. India, Barry O'Farrell. CG Consul General for people. Pardon me, Consul up. General appointments in the in Los Angeles, Houston, Miami, Chicago, trade New York. Trade Commissioners. I don't think Matthias yep. Coleman can be recalled. That's actually a no, position no, where he's he, not appointed he by the one. Australian government. He owns but that. But there are a ton of jobs. A yep. ton of jobs. Now, here's the other thing. Just on, the, on those foreign policy appointments, Labor was already thinking hard about a lot of those appointments in the run-up to 2019. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of, shall we say, mature thinking that may not be public yet about about some of those appointments. But then we go on to the cabinet secretary positions, secretaries of departments, the head of the intelligence agency. So many jobs have become political appointments. Well, it's been nine years where they've been doing mm-hmm. this. I mean, you know, that's the, the spoils of office. That's why you get mm-hmm. there in order to influence mm-hmm. things by appointing people to key positions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's also, I understand... And Annika, tell me if I'm wrong, there's an appetite in the Labor Party for a bit of revenge. So the Pink Bats inquiry, the Dyson Hayden inquiry into the Australian Workers' Union and all that Julia Gillard, Slater and Gordon rubbish, as it turned out to be, that amounted to absolutely nothing. There's a fair bit of an appetite for revenge. And we can expect a Royal Commission into JobKeeper and probably an inquiry into the NDIS. Well, I think Albo flagged this sort of stuff when he said that, I mean, you know, when we talk about integrity in politics, obviously the federal ICAC has taken most of the airtime in terms of policies, but certainly Albo has been talking more broadly about running orderly government, about running government with um, integrity. So royal commissions would be part of that package. And given the um, the composition of the House and, and what looks like to, to be the composition of the Senate, he's got a free run on establishing an ICAC, yep. acting on climate change, yep. pushing the First, Nation, uh, First Nations voice to Parliament forward, though that does require a little bit of, of thinking whether it's going to be constitutionally enshrined or just uh, legislated for. And they would like bipartisan support for it, but I don't think they're going to depend on it. No, if they, they, don't won't, get it, they won't need it. They'll bulldoze it through. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, um, Wildcard, is this the moment that the Republican cause gets a little bit of when the que- When the Queen goes... I think that, in fact, I believe a certain Malcolm Turnbull might be just sort of, you know, getting ready to get back into the saddle and revive exactly ARM. that push. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, sorry, I oh, so we, we got, interrupted your list. Well, we got through it. I don't know. We've got three issues there. I mean, there are a few things that I think are going to be harder for the government, and they all revolve around the economic promises and decisions. Mm-hmm. Housing affordability, mm-hmm. um, how they're going to address the cost of living, um, balancing that with inflationary and budgetary pressures. The cost these of fixing are, aged care is considerable ex- if you're exactly. going to put all those these nurses are, in. These are not straightforward and these are issues where we're not really sure of where the independents are going to stand on this. We know they've stood very clearly on climate, on ICAC and on, on First Nations, but their economic credentials are less are less well known. So I think Labor's going to have a little bit more of a difficult run with those. I might throw another in the mix and that is shake-up of the media 
landscape. Mm-hmm. The News Media Bargaining Code, which uh, is meant to compel Google and Facebook to pay for news content on their platforms, was never designated. The policy never achieved what it was intended to achieve uh, with the last version of that. We might see a toughening of that legislation and we might also see a tightening of the mis- and disinformation code to try and crack down on fake news online. So Might we see a revival of genuine FOI instead of the nonsense that's been going on for the last half a dozen years or more? That is one of those footballs, though, isn't it, John, where uh, those in opposition always promise to do more and then once they are in power, they don't so much. But uh, it would be great to see something in that space and a reform of money politics, too, of um, having a little bit more transparency around political donations. Just to show you how devious I am, if I was on Anthony Albanese's team, right now I would say, by the way, Albo, your flight back from Tokyo is diverting to Perth and we're picking up the Biloela family and you are taking them home. Any chance, do you reckon? That's a great idea. Um, let, let, you might have given them an idea there, John. Well, I, I'm, you know... But the, the other thing... Many years of trying to work out how these people think, it's a touchstone issue. The only people who didn't think the Aragupan family should go back to Biloela with the people in the Prime Minister's office. The rest of the country failed to understand what that was about and it can be a moment, a triumphant moment for the new government if they do it theatrically. Let's move on though because our time as always is tight. Phoebe Heyman is doing a PhD here at La Trobe University on the Teals and she's been following people around as part of her research during this election campaign. Tell us what you saw Phoebe and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, quite literally, in many cases, following around. Um, so, um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time, in particular, at um, down in Kuyong and in Goldstein. So, looking at those campaigns, attending campaign launches. I think the events themselves are interesting. They're huge, huge events. Lots of excitement. What I found most fascinating, though, was wandering around the streets in the area. Um, so. One of so my area of interest is field campaigns, particularly. So looking at all the things that happen on the ground, your door knocks, your phone banks, your volunteers, your placards, which are obviously a very, very big part of this campaign. Um, what they brought that I think was quite new and I haven't seen in previous field campaigns was the free T-shirts, which is a really simple idea. But what it meant is that you have volunteers wandering the streets, whether or not they're actively volunteering at the time. They're sitting at cafes, having brunch, and you watch voters come up to them. You watch people stop others when they're walking their dogs on the street to talk about the candidate, to talk about the campaign. And that was a really, really strong, A, way of making sure that people were communicating the campaign's best you know, policies and interests, but also B, showing that there was this rising tide of support. It's that it wasn't visibility. contrived. This is how real it is. There's actual real people. I understand mm. that, in fact, Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniels' T-shirts are fetching a fair sum on the secondary market <laughs> on eBay since last Saturday's vote. Leaving that aside, do you think these lessons now will be integrated in some way into the major parties? Are they going to try and steal some of these techniques? Yeah, so what I think is quite interesting is that these are obviously blue-ribbon Liberal seats and the accepted wisdom within most parties has been these aren't areas where field campaigns do well. Um, field campaigns are usually considered more effective in less wealthy areas, typically, or rural communities. So that is a huge shift in the accepted wisdom of campaigns, um, and that's going to, I think, make a big difference going forward. Um, and that 
The other thing here is obviously the Liberal Party don't typically engage particularly deeply in that sort of grassroots field campaigning. Be interesting to see if they try and pick it up. I think it there's a number of reasons they don't do it now, and it would be. Well, very they don't have the members for no. a start. <laughs> have you ever been to a Liberal Party branch meeting? No, I, I haven't either. <laughs> I worked for the ABC for thirty years, so I wasn't going to just wander <laughs> off and go. But people who have been tell me if someone walks in the room who's forty suddenly the average age cascades down. And the major topic of conversation is what sort of return you get on investment properties on the suburban, outer suburban fringe of whatever city you're in. And, you know, it really is a very narrow cross-section of the community. It's a tiny, tiny sample of the, the real world. It is, but I'm not sure that branch members are a good metric for support. Um, and they're not a good metric for volunteers, typically. it's You have the people who like to sit around in, you know, your community centres and talk through whatever policy thing it is or what it is they're going to get for catering next time around. But you also have the thousands of supporters who are the ones who actually turn up and hand out. Yep. Um, and there is a very, very big gap between the numbers of those groups and how active they are a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, Phoebe, I was just really, I mean, what struck me as really interesting was your comment about the, the, the free the free t-shirts. And I thought, you know, how does that differ from Clive Palmer and Clive Palmer's saturation? He was handing out free T-shirts at polling booths, caps. I mean, he splashed his signs were absolutely everywhere. In fact, he was employing people. He was employing people to so, wear them and walk yeah, around. Yeah. So boards. why why did the teal campaigns work and and why not Clive Palmer's? Yeah, so the big thing is, I mean, for starters, people have to wear the T-shirts, um, I mean, large numbers. Placards, the reason placards work as opposed to billboards, um, or at least the accepted wisdom within most campaigns, is that it's about showing that this is a normal, acceptable, legitimate choice. It's about showing that there is a rising tide of community support. And so if you're thinking about switching your vote, you're not thinking this might not do anything. You're saying that it could actually have a large effect. It's about it being a normal, legitimate choice and people kind of taking courage from their neighbours is sort of the... All po politics is local. Wasn't there also a really cogent message that was coming from the Teals, whereas Clive Palmer's messaging hmm. has been um, fairly gunshot and all over the place? Here there were three really core messages that were coming through. Yeah, absolutely. No, very, very strong, consistent messaging. Um, and, yeah, I think also... Just those conversations that you saw people having on the street were in and of themselves really big. Phoebe, fascinating. Look forward to your PhD and I hope when it gets published it's in all the bookshops everywhere and, of course, if you're one of Andrea Carson's students, we know that you're going to be very, very good at what you do. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for having me. Phoebe Heyman, who's doing a PhD on the Teals and is developing an expertise which I think will be very much in demand. Now, in a moment, we're also to be joined by La Trobe Asia's director, Associate Professor Beck Strating, who's going to take us through because the Solomons, of all things, suddenly... The, I mean, who would have thought in the middle of a war between Ukraine and Russia and all the rest of it, it was the Solomons that suddenly came out to be an issue in this election campaign, which caught everybody by surprise. But, Simon, particularly, it has to be said, it caught our government by surprise, which reflected rather poorly on them. Uh, I'm not sure it actually took them by surprise. Um, um, I, I, you know, it was Andrew Shearer, director of ONI, uh, Office of National Intelligence, said it was not an intelligence failure, and implicitly meaning it was perhaps a failure diplomatically. In other words, we were telling them they weren't, they weren't doing anything about it. Um, I think we'd run out of tools. Um, given the resourcing we had available, put it that way. Um, 
uh, governments had the resource and governments had made available to DFAT and other agencies. But to, you only have to go around the Pacific and you can see, I mean, the biggest building in Port Moresby was pr provided as a gift to the people of Papua New Guinea by the Chinese government. Well, we, and it's, and it's, the, it's the government offices completely paid for and provided by China. System's been blinking red uh, for a long time on this, yeah. John. Um, I remember talking to ministers in the Rudd government. Uh, oh, yeah, the intelligence agencies have been briefing us on what China's... Like, we've known that this is coming for 16, 20 years. Um, so I, I don't think it was a surprise in that respect. We'll get back to the political implications of it in a m moment. But um, I think you know, well, let's get let's get Beck's advice on this too, because that's her area of expertise. Did anyone in the in the academy in the academic world did people see the Solomons coming up as an issue in an Australian federal election campaign, Beck? Well, I think we've known for quite a while that the Pacific Islands is a particular area of concern when it comes to China's rising influence. Uh, and Solomons, yes, those who follow the Pacific Islands uh, were concerned about Solomons. Uh, and there are other states that are also sort of on, on the list. Uh, and one of the things that we have in Australia are excellent experts on Pacific Island politics. And sometimes their voices are drowned out by a national security community that's actually more concerned about China than they are about our region. Uh, so I don't, uh, I agree with Simon, I don't think it was that much of a surprise. The really interesting thing for me is how this opened up a conversation that was being driven by defence, by a kind of desire for the government, in, in my view, uh, at the start of the election to make this a khaki election, focusing on big defence promises, submarine bases, uh, increasing ADF personnel. What what this particular issue did was open up a space for foreign policy to come into the discussion. And who was driving that part of the Liberals' election campaign? Peter Dutton. Who now is going to have to walk back on a lot of that as part of his attempts to reinvent himself. It's going to be extraordinary. What the Solomons did was take away one of the coalition's two arguments for re-election. Um, one was that they were the preferred stewards of national security in an ever-increasing, the most precarious strategic circumstances Australia has faced since World War II, dot, 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 all those words. And then, bang, the thing, the contingency that every tabletop exercise in Canberra has been about for the last two decades, um, one of our Pacific Island friends uh, gets in the bed with China that happened not a year before the campaign, but during the campaign. So that argument all of a sudden goes... So, of course, Penny Wong out there, the greatest foreign policy failure in, uh, in Australian foreign policy since World War II. It was a gift, wasn't it? Yeah. it was uh, absolute gift. You just took and away one of their best... And moreover, but to Beck's point, it highlights the fact that we can't stop doing whack-a-mole on this as a mm. security challenge... It, it points to a broader failure of Australian diplomacy over a long time that presumably a, a Labor government with a, with a more comprehensive sense of, of what projecting Australian power and influence looks like won't, just, won't perhaps be as heavily through the defence and security lens as, as I presume it will be for, for Foreign Minister Wong. And Beck, who would have thought it was the President of France who would strike one of the most telling blows on an Australian Prime Minister? Well, yeah. I don't think he ever recovered from that, do you? Uh, 
calling the uh, Prime Minister a liar. Yeah, I think that that was a bit of an issue, but I think that the Prime Minister created issues for himself during this campaign by describing himself as a bulldozer, <laughs> because that also, you know, resonates through the defence and, and the national security discussions as well, where okay. you have a government talking about red lines, for example, in relation to the Solomon Islands pack, Pact. But just to uh, go back to, to Simon's point before, one of the things that uh, this opened up a space for was connecting Latrobe's uh, international outlook with some of its domestic priorities and some of the domestic priorities of the Teals. For example, climate change. I mean, in the Pacific Islands, the number one existential security threat is climate change. Rising water levels, yeah. Exactly. And you've got Peter Dutton who made jokes about water Mm. lapping at Mm. the the feet. I mean, that's not a good look. Okay, so really quickly, Penny Wong as Foreign Minister, what are her major challenges? China. Uh, You know, I I don't think that... uh, The fact that she's ethnic Chinese, does that make it easier or harder for her? I'm not really sure whether that plays into the kinds of issues and challenges that uh, Penny Wong and the Labor government are going to face. I think they recognise that that China does pose some, you know, very real security challenges and in e- our region. And economic ones. And economic All those challenges. trade boycotts haven't gone away. Exactly. But uh, there's been some interesting things in the last 24 hours, though, about, you know, potential for the high-level freeze on diplomat high-level diplomatic relations might actually uh, be coming to an end with a message from the Chinese Premier. But I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. But I, what, I think what we'll see, and we saw this during the, the campaign, Labor stuck very closely with the co- oh, yeah. with the coalition oh, yeah. on national security for the purposes of the campaign. Are you oh, saying that's I, not? I don't, I, I don't, I don't think, think it's so. just political. No, John. I don't think so. It I is think not just political. We'll see, we'll see changes in tone. We'll see changes in emphasis. Penny Wong, for example, uh, did share her commiserations uh, with China after the the air crash that killed 132 Chinese. The Morrison government didn't do that. So it'll be that stuff around the edges and it will be that focus on climate change, genuine partnerships in the region and what I found really interesting, the focus on a First Nations foreign policy. Uh, And that is really, uh, I think, an original uh, part of Australia's um, foreign policy that Labor has introduced. All right. Well, much, much to be watched closely here. Thank you so much. La Trobe University's Asia Director, Associate Professor Beck Strating. So we've only got a few minutes left of our final, final episode here. And let's go round very quickly and ask each of our panellists, Casa, we haven't heard much from you while we've been hearing about uh, the, the overseas issues there. Um the Australian media, we were talking in the previous episode about how we pretty much agreed between us here on the podcast that the Australian media has served the public fairly poorly in the last campaign. The media has to learn about some of these lessons from this election campaign too, and particularly the ones Beck was just talking about, that some of the coverage, which was, my personal view is, was being fed by the coalition in order to try and influence people domestically, some of that coverage has not helped Australia's cause. Do you think that message will get through? It's a complicated question, John. Um, The media is not always so good at self-reflection and it has been Ah. hollowed out uh, with job losses as the business model has changed and become a digital one. 
But at the core of a lot of the coverage that we're seeing is power and capital. And that's been the interests of the Murdoch press, which has run this really vitriolic campaign. They need to, well, uh, Murdoch and his executives might need to find a way to work with the new government, whether we see a softening or not, or whether we see a, a doubling down and campaigning for the next election that the permanent campaign might roll on ready for uh, 2025. OK, so let's put ourselves in the boardroom at News Limited. <laughs> are they sitting there going, OK, we better smoke the peace pipe, or are they saying, let's double down, let's go them? Well, one thing that needs to be acknowledged is the cultural capital of mainstream media and of News Corp is not what it was 10 years ago. Sure, but do you say to Chris Kenny, Jared Henderson, <laughs> um, Adam Crichton over in America, um, Mark, oh no, what's his name, uh, Chris Mitchell, I mean, you know, what this whole raft of, you know, I think, you know, ageing people who howl at the moon and all the, t all the rest of it, you know, I mean, Sky After Dark, some of the stuff that they've been saying even since Saturday is just almost caricature. All right, I'll, I'll answer So which you. way do you go? Do you say to them, oi, cool your jets, or do you say, go harder? Well, if they don't heed the warnings of this campaign, they do so at their peril because increasingly there's a disjuncture between the audience and those messages coming out from what are substantially older white men. Alan Jones, relaunched how many times since he left 2GB? Every time to an ever-diminishing base. But, look, we can talk about this, but this this election is great for Sky After Dark. Are you kidding? Like No, they're not on the drip anymore. You see, Simon, their whole business model, no, the, the Murdoch media's no. whole business model is to be fed exclusives no. from the... And for 10 years it's worked, Fed exclusives from the inside I, camp I, I really of the government. I, I really disagree. I, I, I think their business model is, is um, catering. The fact that they'll be starved by the new Prime Minister's office is neither here nor there. Oh, I, don't, um, I totally disagree. From the point of view of a working journo, well, I, fine. You, they but, lived but, for but it. But you ask me if didn't. I'm sitting around the board table yeah. at News Corp, it's a great day. We're, we're fine either way. Our audience, is, we're now the, the loyal opposition. We're the home of the loyal opposition. It's like um, Biden being elected, what did that do to Fox in the US? Absolutely nothing. Made them even more so important. So if Simon's right, what we will see, John, is a more polarised media in Australia. I think that's A more true. partisan media uh, with less of the objectivity that was a mark of the 20th century. But they'll be even less informed than they were before because at least they were getting stuff from the government offices that exclusively used the Australian, the Daily Telegraph, the Courier Mail, the Herald Sun as their media mouthpieces and their outlets. That's going to stop as of yesterday. Phil Curry got a few stories out and, of PMO at and, and the other, you know, the default setting of all the government's televisions in Parliament House, which was on Sky News 24-7, they might suddenly find they have to watch the ABC. No, they, might, they won't. They want to know what's going on. No, because ABC 24 covers other things and Sky's a different... It's how people talk to one another in Parliament House through Sky. I think that'll change. That will stop. That's my point. Uh, I'd be surprised. That'll be where some people keep talking to each other, but it's not going to be where the government expresses its well, views. Uh, you know, so I think it'll be Plenty of Labor people get be, their head up on Sky during the day. They have in the past because they wanted to connect to that sector. Now they don't need to. So, John, you're thinking it'll be a Daniel Andrews model where... Yes, yes, precisely. The Premier of Victoria just doesn't give much airtime at all to... Has nothing to do the with Murdoch them. Press. Nothing to do with them. 
doesn't go on commercial radio, doesn't talk to the, the man who used to be my opposite number on 3AW, Neil Mitchell. He'd come and talk to me all the time. Well, would never talk to Anthony 3AW. Albanese did say that he wants a less shouty media yep. and he's not going to put up with incivility. So let's watch this space and see how he manages to discipline that press pack and whether some people become winners and some losers in getting those exclusives. Final words. Annika. Last last words, last episode. This is the okay, end. This is to, this is the end of the line for below the line. What am I going to come back and say in three years' time? Will the teal independents still be independents, or will they have formed a party in three years? Simon, uh, great questions about the teals. If, as it looks to be the case, they are not going to be pivotal in the House of Representatives, what is the business case? Labor is terrified of them. Will Labor yeah, they'll come after us next. Yeah, will Labor play that. ball? Will yep. Labor shut them out? If Labor sh- watch that space very carefully, won't as they the weapon- teals, they'll weaponise them, won't they? Because they're mostly keeping Liberals at bay, not Labor. But how do you manage that on the floor? How do you give them votes, things to be for? But they need to assert their independence. They will not always vote as a block. I think no. that actually be very healthy for the teals if they don't always vote as a block. Yep. So there's some real and, – and here's the other thing. They're all first-timers into parliament. Yeah, so it's going them, to be a fascinating journey Take some while to, to get watch. their feet under the desk. Well, not all of them are, but lots of them are. But it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, if you wanted to keep Keong and Higgins and these seats, if you want to keep them teal, then the Labor Party feeds them infrastructure, uh, feeds them school halls, feeds them bridges. But and the expectations from their communities – are sky high. Yes, no, true. And that's right. And they've yeah. got, they've got they, to get up and deliver on the floor of the parliament, both symbolically but substantively, at, right? And, and I just think a Labor government's going to look at them and go, well, what are we giving them and what aren't we? And, and How far do we go? Now, Casa, this is all your fault. You created this podcast, so you get the final, final word. Wow. Uh, in terms of the parliament, two things I think we – need to watch over the next three years and that is the way the increased number of women in the parliament shapes the discourse and the way that politicians interact with each other. I think we might see a different type of politics and the other um, complementary aspect of that is a record number of First Nations uh, members of parliament in in the House and in the Senate. All, th- all women. I think we're going to see some amazing policy shifts there. And Sorry, the new ones are all women, I should say. Sorry, Pat Dodson's not a woman. No. <laughs> Gordon Gordon-Reed. Yep. Uh, so we will see a change in policy and this will make this term of government a really interesting one. On my very f- uh, final word, <laughs> I want to say thanks to my fellow uh, Below the Liners for joining me on the podcast and a very big thank you to you, John, for leading us in our conversations and keeping us on track. Thank you very much. That's Andrea Carson who created this and invited us to come together and it's been great fun. Professors Annika Gaya and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney, Andrea Carson from La Trobe, I'm from Melbourne Uni, John Fain. Now, if you've enjoyed this, then have a listen to La Trobe's School of Humanities and Social Sciences new podcast, Climate Hustings, which features interviews about climate advocacy, hosted by Laurie Zion and Liz Connor. But our huge thanks to Courtney Carthy, Benjamin Clark and the people at The Conversation at the website for making all of this possible. I hope you've enjoyed it. See your next election, perhaps. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation.
that Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. The Australian people have voted for change.